0: Papa was a rolling stone wherever he laid his hat was his home. And then when he died, all he left us was a loan. So I guess my question is, should Papa had done a consumer proposal or don- gone into bankruptcy to um, clear up his estate for his kids? What do you think? Well, it depends if he split up with his wife or not. <laughs> <laughs> with Mama. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I don't think the uh, the kids are responsible for Papa's loan. Probably dies at the estate.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think the spouse is just because they're married. They don't understand that you don't have the liability unless it's joint. Right. Right. And I think one of the bigger misconceptions we get is there's an agreement in place and it's they've separated the debt and one person goes bankrupt. Now the other person's responsible to pay.
0: In the WHO, I'm free. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if some bankrupts feel that way, right? They're under the load of this debt that they can't manage. And then finally, they just wipe it all out, right? And I'm free. I, well, you're not free. right. Not, yeah. not, not quite free, but you're free of the debt load.
2: Yes. Once yeah. you're discharged, you're free of the debt load. You're it's not getting the discharge. Yeah, you're not free of your spouse, though. <laughs>
0: Unless your spouse is Papa,
2: right? Then right. Twice. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so that's, that's an interesting angle is that a lot of people think just because you're married, you're responsible for the other person's debt. And what I often say is if the other person is a multi-billionaire, they have no obligation to pay your debts. They yeah. may if they choose to, but they don't have to.
1: Well,
0: you can't. The family law doesn't equalize debt. It equalizes positive assets, right? So. Right. You can't NEP debt if there's only debt. Right. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what our audience uh, thinks today. It's a special Q&A session. First time doing it. So uh, really happy to have you join us, Barbara.
1: Thank you. I'm
3: happy to be here.
0: We've got an action-packed afternoon of questions and answers, hopefully.
3: Yeah, lots to talk about today. So I just want to first of all say hello to everyone and welcome to bankruptcy and breakdown of the marriage 301 we really appreciate you joining us here today. And today we have the pleasure of having our guest speakers, Howard Manis and Barbara Vicentin join the panel with Russell for a recap on parts one and two of this series, along with an extended Q&A session. And before I get to our introductions i'm just going to let you know what um, what our speakers have planned to discuss over the next hour. Um, So, on the agenda today, our panelists are going to start by discussing bankruptcy and consumer proposals, um, followed by bankruptcy and the effect on equalization. Next, I'll be discussing bankruptcy and support obligations, and lastly, bankruptcy before and after the date of separation. And then um, after the recap session, we will also host an extended Q&A with questions we received in advance uh, from our registrants and our presenters will also do their best to answer any audience questions that do come in live today during the presentation. And as always, we do ask that you keep in mind that the content provided in this virtual event is to provide general information and should not be considered as legal advice. So next, uh, I have the pleasure of introducing our speakers today. So first up, we have Barbara Vicentin, who is a licensed insolvency trustee and manager of operations for Hoyes Michelo and Associates Incorporated with over 25 years of experience. And she manages the day-to-day operations at Hoyes Michelo's. And she is responsible for staff training, policies, and procedures, and ensuring the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. Standards of professional practice are incorporated into the firm's operational standards. Barbara continues to work closely with the stakeholders to resolve issues and or concerns during the insolvency process. Next, we have Howard Manis, and Howard has been practicing bankruptcy and insolvency law and commercial litigation since his call to the bar in 1993. He provides legal advice to trustees in bankruptcy. Receivers, banks, and financial institutions, landlords, trade suppliers, and debtors in all aspects of insolvency law, including bankruptcy, proposals, reorganizations, and restructurings, enforcement of security, and in protecting rights outside of insolvency proceedings. And lastly, we have Russell, who is the founder and senior partner at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers, and with nearly 25 years of experience, he uses his knowledge and expertise to serve his clients in all aspects of family law and helps them in coping with the difficulties of separation and divorce, the division of assets such as homes and pensions, and the calculation and enforcement of child and spousal support. He uses his experience to create unique solutions for each client to enable them and their families to move forward and supports them through the transition of divorce and separation. So now that you know a little bit more about our panel today, I'm going to let Russ take it away from here.
0: Thank you for those kind introductions. Uh, Let's throw up our first poll. Um, Please interact with the polls. It helps us understand who our audience is and what you're thinking and it makes for a better experience for our audience members. As always, please give us your feedback. Um, it helps us design new programs. And I, while we got this poll running, we've got another slide here that Shannon and I want to discuss. More cowbell. What are we talking about here, Shannon?
3: This was actually new to me, Russ. I'm going to let <laughs> you do the honors. <laughs>
0: well, our feedback we get is more q Right, we want more time for Q and A because we pack so much into one hour. So what we did is we designed this entire program's Q and A with a very short recap. Uh, So the audience wanted more cowbell. We're bringing more cowbell. Very important musical instrument in rock and roll. And uh, let's see who our audience is. Thank you, Shannon. And seventy-one percent lawyer practicing family law, lawyer another profession fourteen percent. Uh, professional, in another field, 4%. We have uh, somebody going through a separation and divorce and somebody helping um, a loved one. So thank you for answering that question, everybody. Let's do another quick poll, and then we're going to get into um, our substance here. So what happens if my client or the other spouse goes bankrupt during a family court proceeding? I'll give everybody a chance to answer these. While we do, let's go through some questions that uh, have come in today, um, here's one for you, Barbara. Is it possible for a bankruptcy trustee to revive an undisclosed equalization claim after the bankrupt has been discharged?
1: I guess it would depend on what happened and everything else. We'd have to review the transactions prior to in order to go back and revive it. The trustee would need to apply to court, get reappointed if they've been discharged as well, and then annul the discharge of the bankrupt um, if the circumstances warranted that.
2: Have you experienced anything like that, Howard? Well, actually, uh, Barb and I are working on one right now where, not necessarily in a family law situation, but the debtor did not disclose all of her assets. So she got discharged, and then we subsequently learned about it and were in court in two weeks to set aside the discharge and pursue the undisclosed assets, so uh, it could be a rough ride for the the bankrupt.
0: Yeah, I think the court would probably have very little patience if there's non-disclosure or some kind of uh, mischief going on. Uh, Yeah, they they
2: don't like hidden assets, and uh, when you swear an affidavit disclosing your assets, that doesn't appear to be true.
0: Right, okay, so let's see what our audience is thinking. all right, so spouse goes bankrupt, you're handling a, bank, a family court case. 10% everything stops. 18% continue with all claims except property. Uh, 37% continue the property claim through your trustee. Uh, 16% ask the family court to determine equalization. That's if there is an equalization, that's uh, correct, I think. Lift the automatic state to continue with your family law claims and 1% other. So what do you think? I think both things happen, right? You go to bankruptcy court to deal with property. You can lift the stay if you need to. Family court still needs to determine equalization though, right, Howard?
2: I agree with all of what you said, Russ. Um, There would be a stay of proceedings, but you probably want to lift the stay so that you could quantify the equalization claim, but support and other things that, The bankrupt spouse is obligated to pay. He or she still has to pay.
0: Okay, so let's get in. We're going to do a quick recap, and then the rest is going to be Q&A. So first of all, what are bankruptcy and consumer proposals and the roles of the various players? Barbara, I've got you down for these. um, Maybe three minutes or less. What do we need to know?
1: Okay, so the trustee, the trustee is licensed or appointed under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. We're regulated by the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy and we are officers of the court. Our role is to ensure that the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act is upheld by all the stakeholders. The trustees offer free consultation, give advice to people on their options under the BIA to deal with their financial struggles. We are not lawyers, we do not provide legal advice. Um, Creditors, we have numerous classes of creditors. A secured creditor is a person or business that holds a mortgage, secured line of credit. Um, CRA can fall under this for unpaid taxes, liens against houses. Um, They hold the property as security until the debt is paid in full. If you want to keep the asset, you must continue the payments. Unsecured creditors would be things such as your credit cards, payday loans, finance companies would fall here. Preferred creditors have a status above the unsecured creditors when it comes to dividends and payments, support um, relates relating to 12 months um, owing prior to the date of insolvency falls under this category. Um, under here we have a spouse, his husband or wife, and then we have CRA, Canada Revenue Agency. We've got to review these claims and their debt carefully. They can fall under every single one of those categories. They can have a lien against your house. They can be unsecured for unpaid taxes, or they can be a preferred creditor for um, statutory remittances to the government for withheld payroll um, that they so haven't. Dealt they with.
0: move right to the front of the line. Yeah,
1: they can't well, have right to the front. Last time
0: we talked about this, the analogy I was, it was I drew was like getting on an airplane, right? <laughs> You've got your first class, and you've got the point Delta Elite points, and then you've got coach and economy. So it's sort of a class of creditors, right?
1: Yep, there are classes of creditors, and the preferreds can vary. Um, Section 136 outlines them very specifically. Other priorities under 136 is levy payable to the government. Um, The trustees' fees and legal costs fall under their prior to support as well.
0: So the role of judges in the family court, in the bankruptcy court, what do we need to know here, Howard, real quick?
2: Well, um, for the most part, most bankruptcy or proposal files never get to court. So the judges never get involved. It's generally only where there are issues. Uh, In these circumstances, you would probably go to the bankruptcy court to lift the stay of proceedings if you wanna continue with your family law proceeding. Um, and that would be it for bankruptcy court unless there's an opposition to the discharge of the bankrupt but I think we'll get into that a little bit later and the family court uh, continues with its proceeding once the stay has been lifted so that's in a nutshell the interplay between the courts. My understanding is
0: every judge of the Superior Court is also a judge of the bankruptcy court. So they have jurisdiction to deal with it, but generally they don't, is that correct?
2: That's that's correct. And generally they defer because a family law uh, judge generally doesn't want to make decisions on a bankruptcy act that they've never seen.
0: Yeah, all right. All right, so our next category, uh, bankruptcy and the effect on equalization. We're going back to you here, Barb.
1: Okay. So we are talking about exempt assets versus um, debts that survive. So an exempt asset would be a vehicle with less value than $7,100, some household goods, personal effects, tools of the trade for people who are self-employed up to 13,000, RRSPs, contributions greater than 12 months before the insolvency are all considered exempt versus claims that survive bankruptcy under Section 178 are support, fraud, embezzlement, parking tickets, fines, um, driving fines, and dividends to the creditor who was unaware of the insolvency. So those are some types that would survive. Um, Then we go on to bankruptcy before and after the date of separation. It depends on when you're filing. Are you the person who's receiving the equalization? Are you the person who's having to pay it? Um, So there's a lot of different things that we have to review and discuss to get to really understand the situation. The timing is also going to impact the number of people that are in the household, um, surplus income, um, potentially the length of the insolvency. So, um, a discharge, we discussed a little bit earlier is the person's release from all the financial responsibility of their debt, except for those matters referred to under section 178. So those are the support fraud embezzlement some of the student loans the parking trapping tickets or the dividends that would have been paid to a creditor who is unaware of the situation
0: how many parking tickets are we
2: wiping out here <laughs>
1: Unless, well sometimes there's thousands of dollars <laughs>
2: have, exactly and a lot of people have um the 407
0: yeah, right. I guess if you're in downtown Toronto, you're going bankrupt. You're going to park wherever you want it, and don't worry about the
2: tickets. But or you go bankrupt because you had all those parking fees. Yeah. The 407
1: <laughs> is large. I, I've yeah. seen people on the 407 with $30,000, $40,000 worth.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: It's incredible. Okay. Category three for a recap bankruptcy and support orders. Howard, three minutes or less. What do, we, yeah. what do we want to review here? I can do
2: it in under three minutes. Clock's um, on. Put it on well, the clock, okay. Shannon. It's like that name that tune for those of us that are old enough to remember that. Right. Anyways, I'm using up my three minutes. Child support and spousal support still have to be paid by the payor, whether it's uh, the bankrupt spouse or the non bankrupt spouse. As Barb said, child support and spousal support arrears survive a discharge from bankruptcy. So, in a discharge, as she said, the debts are released once the person gets discharged, but these two categories do not get discharged. And that's pretty important because at the end of a bankruptcy, a the, the paying spouse will not be able to get away with having not paid prior to bankruptcy. So if they're going bankrupt simply to avoid support, it's not gonna work. And the continuing obligation still exists to make monthly support payments because just cause you went bankrupt doesn't mean you could avoid your obligations to your family. If
0: that's your litigation strategy, you get another lawyer. So let's go to category four for our final recap. Bankruptcy before and after the date of separation. Back to you, Howard. Uh, let's recap this in a couple minutes if we can, then we're gonna go to our audience questions.
2: Great, Great. so, um, Bankruptcy before or after the data separation, Barb said that there's a whole bunch of issues to consider, which is ultimately true. In my view, it doesn't really matter because either way, the spouse is involved. Now, we had talked a little bit before the seminar actually started about whether one spouse can be responsible for the other spouse's debt. The answer to that is no unless there's a joint debt. You both sign a line of credit, one goes bankrupt, the bank's going to look to the other one for full payment. But uh, the most common example is when husband and wife jointly own a house and one spouse files for bankruptcy, the other one is involved because a joint asset is affected. So point B here is Fraudulent conveyance, what we often see is right before bankruptcy, one spouse transfers title of their interest in the house to the other spouse. And that can be okay if it's done pursuant to either a court order or a written separation agreement that was negotiated. If you do a separation agreement the day before you do the transfer and the day after is bankruptcy, all that looks cloudy. But if done right in legitimate circumstances, it could be valid. The problem is most times it's just done between the spouses without getting professional advice. And then the non-bankrupt spouse finds themselves in a problem.
0: All right, thank you, Howard. So we had about 40 or 50 questions coming in advance. We're getting questions through the Q&A box. Please, audience members, put your questions in i going to try to get to them when we run the polls. And we've orga- tried to categorize the, organize the questions for student category. So we talked about bankruptcy and consumer proposals. That's going to be the first class of questions that we go to. And let's pull up our first question. For the purpose of the impact on equalization claims, does a consumer proposal have the same effect as a bankruptcy? That's one part. If yes, at what point in that process? So I'll throw this one to you, Barbara.
1: I'm okay. Let me, so, yeah, the impact will depend on if you're receiving the funds or paying the funds um, to your ex-spouse. The assets vest in the trustee in a bankruptcy, um, but they don't vest in the consumer proposal with the administrator um, with it. But the equalization amount would be considered in determining what should be paid to the creditors under a consumer proposal um, with it. In both scenarios, the liability is unsecured. In a proposal, the dividends are paid throughout the course of the proposal. Um, In a bankruptcy, the dividends aren't paid until the file is closed. So the dividends would be delayed until the bankruptcy is discharged and the trustee closes their file.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna throw an additional question in here that just came in from the audience. Is it mandatory to seek lifting of a stay even if no equalization or property claims. Do you still have to
2: get, do you still need to lift the stay, Howard? I would think not. Um, I My view is that only issues pertaining to assets need to be, uh, need to have the stay lifted because by operation of law, the assets vest in the trustee upon filing a bankruptcy. It's different in a proposal, as we talked about in previous sessions. In the proposal, the assets remain with the debtor.
0: Okay, next so it's question. not a
2: simple question, simple answer, but somewhat simple.
0: Nothing simple about this, right? That's why right. we're That's why it's our third session. That's right, we're still trying to get it right. Um, all right, next audience question. If there is a bankruptcy, do the credit cards and line of credits get cut off right away? Over to you, Barbara.
1: So the debtors required to submit all credit cards to the trustee if they haven't destroyed them already. And then we destroy them at that time. Um, the line of credit and credit cards um, will be discontinued usually when the lender is advised of the insolvency. Most documentation is sent out the same day through a third party, but a lot of the banks and credit card companies have third parties that deal with their insolvency, so it may take a week or two for it to trickle down to the bank in order for them to lock down those um, lines of credit and credit cards. If, the debtor- soon,
0: if you're going into bankruptcy, those cards and line of credits are probably maxed out Pretty much to the limit. Many of them are. Yeah.
1: Um, Some of them aren't. And sometimes we're not aware of all the credit cards that the person has. Um, So once they do get to the bank level, they are locked. There's nothing that can be done. But if for some reason the debtor uses the credit card during that time, it becomes a post-insolvency debt. They'd be responsible to pay it in a bankruptcy. It's a reason to oppose their discharge if they've used overextended themselves with it. So... The trustees,
0: trustees do a credit report that would list all the all the most credit cards, right?
1: Yeah, they do. But um, if they've obtained one in between doing the credit report and filing, we right. may not know about it.
0: Yeah,
1: right. right. But the purpose of the bankruptcy, and, well, the bankruptcy is to provide the honest but unfortunate debtor with a clean slate.
0: Got it. All right. Next question if the parties own the house jointly, will the trustee always have to uh, equally share the net proceeds with the joint owner? Barbara?
1: Yeah, the trustee's only entitled to receive the percentage that the bankrupt owns. So we don't have any greater rights than they do. So if it is a 50-50 ownership, we're entitled to receive 50% of the net proceeds. So whether that be through a sale or making an arrangement with the Um, non-bankrupt spouse, that would be one of the ways to do it. Um, So one of the other things is determining the equity, what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we get into that a little bit later, but it's determining it at the day of filing and the day of discharge. So I
0: I assume if it's not on jointly and somebody's putting forward a joint family venture claim or some other trust claim, the trustee's gonna to have to hold off until that's adjudicated. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes.
2: The other interesting point on this question is the trustee can't sell the property if there's 50-50 ownership because they have to deal with the non-bankrupt spouse and also have to figure out a way to get possession so they can transfer on a sale. So it's not that simple. For a trustee to do it often there needs to be some court proceeding either partition and sale or sometimes if they can't reach a settlement the trustee would register on title and wait until the parties sell the house those are extreme cases but yeah. it's not as simple as that question
0: but certainly the non-bankrupt spouse is entitled to notice and a chance to respond and then at that point you would go to court and get an order
2: securing. That's right, because presumably they will not agree to sell the house. That's right. Right.
0: Yeah. Okay. So here's one for you, Howard. Where does legal aid fit in as a creditor?
2: Um, In my experience, legal aid often registers security on the house against the bankrupt spouse's interest. So to the extent that that asset vests in the trustee, then the trustee would assuming they sell the property, would have to pay off legal aid out of the bankrupt share, not the non-bankrupt share. Other times, legal aid is an unsecured creditor and they rank just in the same way as the credit card companies and the suppliers of materials and Rogers and Tallis and Bell and all those.
0: This is a process question. If, if Barbara and I were married, And she'd be lucky. If she gets a legal aid certificate when we're going through our divorce, does legal aid have to give me notice as the other titled spouse that they're putting a lien on? Or can they just do it unilaterally?
2: I'm not sure, but my gut feeling would be that they do not because the registration of the lien only affects your share of the house. But which she shouldn't care. It's gonna cloud the title though. It could. It could, to be honest with you, I'm not sure.
1: Um,
2: okay. I don't
1: know. But CRA doesn't have to notify the other spouse when they put their lien on.
2: That's true. I've been in
1: situations where I'm having a discussion that people are signing um, the bankruptcy, and I'm having to explain to the spouse that there's a lien by CRA and what that means. And so then you nicely remove yourself for about ten minutes while they discuss the implications of that. Yeah. Um, but that's a difficult that's not conversation a great to conversation, have.
2: conversation, I assume.
0: No. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a shocker, right? Um, mm-hmm. Okay, great questions. Keep them coming in. Thank you, audience members. Um, can you? There's a bunch here for you, Howard, and we'll just—I okay. guess we we'll do them one at a time. Can you please explain the prioritization? Prioritization a bit further. What are the criteria? And the examples here. Could a payment to a non-to an arms-length contractor, lawyer, other service provider, be a priority? And if so, could the contractor have to repay the trustee? So we've got a couple things to unpack here.
2: OK, so I think what we're talking about in this question is a reviewable transaction, uh, not necessarily priority, because as Barb outlined before, the secured creditors get paid before unsecured creditors. CRA wears a number of different hats, so they fit into one of those pots. Um, So, I think what we're really talking about is prior to bankruptcy, the bankrupt person makes a payment to a contractor, lawyer, or other service provider, and whether that can be attacked and ask those recipients to repay the money. So, generally speaking, if it's an arm's length transaction, those are generally okay. Uh, However, there are situations where you know, the contractor is your brother, and the implication is that you're trying to prefer paying your brother as a creditor as opposed to all your other creditors. So it depends on the circumstances. Um, I'm dealing with one now where the company w- knew it was going to be uh, signed into bankruptcy by the bank, and it paid 100000 that it owed to a friend of the owner. It was really owed. But it was uh, considered by the bank to be a fraudulent preference. And fraudulent is not really fraud in the sense that we all know, but that's what it's called. And the bank is now trying to claw back that $100,000. We're fighting it, but uh, chances of our being successful are not great because the exact reason why they paid the $100,000 was because they would rather have their. Brand to get the 100000 then the bank. Yeah, so yes, it, it could be clawed back in different circumstances. But of course, the recipient of the money would challenge it if they thought they had a valid defense.
0: This just came in. And is there a shelf life to fraudulent conveyance? The question from the audience is, is there a certain length of time between the conveyance from one home to the other spouse and the bankruptcy, which in- which ensures the conveyance was not considered fraudulent. So you talked a little bit about timing. How much time before, I guess, it passes the smell
2: test? What would you say? Well, um, for non-arms length transfers, it's three months prior to the bankruptcy event. Um, For arms length, it's one year. So between spouses would be a year. That's within the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, but there, Ontario also has a Assignments and Preferences Act and a Fraudulent Conveyances Act, which are rarely used, but those don't have time limits, right. so uh, it could go indefinite. The most I've ever seen is usually five years, because okay. if nobody's pursued it by then, then it's probably a valid transaction.
0: Okay, one spouse files for bankruptcy, will it affect the other spouse, Barbara?
1: Yes, it can. As we talked about before, it um, affects the joint assets and it can affect the joint liabilities, Um, potentially the surplus income requirements as well. Um, So what happens with the house as the asset, how are they affected by that? Um, The RSPs. so do they have joint credit cards, um, overdraft? The agreements between them may be that they each separate and take on some of the joint liability they're gonna pay. When they file the assignment in bankruptcy, the banks are gonna go back to the other person who was listed as a joint debtor potentially and go and ask them to pay the full amount outstanding.
0: Okay, let's go, let's do a poll. It's been a while. Um, let's see what our audience is thinking. Make sure everybody's still awake out there. What happens to the money home if one spouse goes bankrupt. So while we're waiting for that, let's go to another question that recently came in. And this is kind of an interesting one. If an order is made providing that FRO shall enforce a cost order as child support, how would it subsequently, subsequent bankruptcy affect that or would it? And um, the follow-up question to this is what if the party declared bankruptcy prior to the making of
2: this order? What do you think, Howard? Well, if we do the second part first, I think if the um, court made the order after, I think that that's where the stay would come in as against the bankrupt spouse, because you can't force the bankrupt spouse to deal with prior debts. Um, Now, we talked about it would survive bankruptcy or survive the discharge, But during the bankruptcy, there'd be a stay, unless the stay was lifted. So that would be another instance where we'd wanna potentially lift the stay because the bankrupt still has income. Just because it files for bankruptcy, it's still earning the same amount of money, just not paying the debts that it had incurred prior. Uh, with respect to the first part about Fro enforcing it, I think, uh, again, the stay would, would apply and there'd need to be a court order lifting the stay to allow the fro to enforce and i got to figure it'd be hard pressed on judges with any form of judicial discretion not to lift the stay in order to allow the support or or compel the support to be paid Right. right
0: especially if it's child support um let's see what our audience thinks here Uh, Other spouse gets home 0%, home sold 9%, trustee takes possession 13%, uh, make a deal with the trustee 66% and 12% other which is in the Q&A box which we'll take a look at but this leads us into our second category of questions which is bankruptcy and the effect on equalization and the first one we have up here is for Barbara it ties in neatly with our poll question. What is the legal and practical effect on the matrimonial home if it is held jointly and one of the spouses declares bankruptcy?
1: So as a trustee, we've got to determine the equity in the home. We'd obtain a third party valuation, receive copies of the mortgage statements to determine um, is there equity, is there not equity? If there's no equity, the trustee can release their interest to the secured lender, but retains the right to value the equity at the date of discharge. So if the equity has increased, there can be received payments at the time of discharge um, for that equity. If there's equity at the time of filing, um, the bank, the trustee should register on title, um, try to make a settlement with a non-bankrupt spouse, but at the same time, they retain the right to review the equity at the time of discharge. Um, during COVID, we've seen this happen through the courts a couple of times where the equity did go up, especially during the big boom. And the trustee was able to realize um, the greater amount at the time of discharge um, than what they had originally agreed upon at the day of filing, especially if it's a second or third time bankrupt, they're in bankruptcy 24 to 36 months, anything can happen during that time. I don't know of any court cases in Howard May where they've made a settlement agreement at the time of filing um, and received a court order to state that that was gonna be the full and final settlement amount. And not review it again at discharge
2: well sometimes those happen in the family court as well right family judges will put together an, an order that encompasses consent terms and i would assume that the bankruptcy courts would honor the order of the family court so one yeah, of the, that we, can yeah have, they would one of the yeah.
0: questions i came in uh, which isn't part of our screenshot here Can a family court judge order a titled owner not to file for
2: bankruptcy? I've never seen that even in some contentious family law proceedings. I don't think you can stop someone from doing so, but I have seen in certain instances where uh, motions have been brought in the bankruptcy court to deal with those kinds of filings where it's done, I guess, for improper purposes. Sometimes it happens when the person's not even insolvent, but they just want to gain some kind of procedural leverage right. in the negotiations with their ex-spouse. Yes. So those are abusive situations or abusive filings. And it, those are rare, but I've seen situations where the bankruptcy court does get involved in those
0: filed out of spite, right? Not because of debts. Exactly,
2: or leverage.
0: Right, all right. I'm not sure if I follow this question, but I'm gonna throw it over to you, Barbara. If two people have been separated for over two years before one files for bankruptcy while they're still legally married, is the spouse gonna be affected by this?
1: They can be, but as we discussed before, it's gonna be based on do they still have joint assets? Do they have any joint liabilities? If they haven't separated those, um, there will be an effect for that person. Um, The trustee may seek, you know, the payment of equity for the home during that time. Um, One of the best things, but it's very difficult to do is one of the best things is if there is a separation, there's signing off on things, you know, get your name off the credit card, stop using it. Um, take yourself off that, you know, unsecured line of credit or whatever. But sometimes the other person doesn't qualify on their own based on their income in order to do that. But that would be the way to protect yourself. The best way to protect yourself is never have any joint liabilities.
0: Or uh, do a credit
2: check before you start dating, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Those things change on a dime and the other spouse often doesn't know. Is
0: that part of the online dating sites now? The credit score? I don't know. I don't uh, know. <laughs> let's see what our audience thinks. It's been a while. Let's here. Make sure everybody's still with us. How are loans from friends and family treated in bankruptcy? So this is always uh this is always uh, an issue, right? And it makes for interesting Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners. We're gonna give the audience a chance to um To uh, answer this, I'm just going to pull up another question. Um, Just trying to understand. And there's a question that came in from, will the bankruptcy, if if you're a real estate agent, um, will the bankruptcy affect your license? Do you know, uh, Barbara?
1: It usually does. Um, They usually want someone um, who hasn't filed. If you have filed, they want a copy of your discharge. They want some documentation from the trustee as to where things are at.
0: Okay. All right. Let's see what our audience is thinking here. Brands get paid last, 13%. They're list as creditors unsecured in the bankruptcy, 64%. They lose their loans. Um, they make cash arrangements or private arrangement, six percent. Do you usually see friends and family listed in as creditors? Uh, Barbara.
2: Very frequently they are no, listed. I- mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, happens, it happens a lot because when you you know have financial difficulties who do you go to first
0: right yeah right. so usually yeah before you take that step that's a good point
1: a lot of family members lend money in order to buy vehicles you know my suggestion would be if you're going to do that make sure you take out the lien against the vehicle, same as a bank would or finance company would under yeah. the ppsa act and get a registration against it um, make sure you have the proper documentation. You've got a loan agreement, payment schedule, interest rates, all of that outlined. It's hard because it's a lot of emotions involved, but
0: you know what it's a business
1: decision, not personal.
0: What about the parents who lend their children the deposit, you know, hundred thousand for the house, uh, but they don't take that step? But it's still a loan. I guess still a loan, but point, it's
1: unsecured.
0: Get in line, right? You're unsecured. You're not going to get. It's an in
2: unsecured line. loan, but the. If the spouses are separated, for sure the one whose parents did not give the money are going to argue that it was a gift. Right. So that should be documented in either sense. But I think the best way to protect the parents is for the parents to put a second mortgage on. argue that as a gift for the purposes of calculating
0: net family property.
2: And also, so that uh, you know, the, no money would go back to the parents because, in a contentious separation, they don't want the other side getting any of the money because they're essentially paying half of it. Yeah,
0: yeah, can get messy for sure. Does a claim for equalization of a spouse's pension survive discharge, Howard? What, what do we need to know here?
2: Well, uh, generally speaking, pensions are exempt assets in, in many situations. So, I think that it's not necessarily a survive the discharge. it's it's outside of bankruptcy. So continue through the family proceedings to pursue your entitlement
0: there. Right. so you're the person's going bankrupt, their pensions are exempt. You want to make a claim. You, you're're you're, as a spouse, I guess you're better than a secured creditor. in that situation, you get the first kick of the can, right? That's right. That's right. So there's one silver lining. All right. Finally, we found one. <laughs> one. <laughs> How long have we have been? We've been going 40 minutes. We found one.
2: That's silver right. Lining. Okay. Are RSPs exempt? Howard. Um, RSPs are exempt in a bankruptcy other than contributions made in the prior 12 months. Most of the time, um, debtors are scrambling so they don't contribute to their RSP in the previous 12 months. So it's usually not an issue, but occasionally it is. But to the extent that you have an RSP portfolio, no matter how big or how small, the trustee cannot touch it. And likewise, neither can your creditors.
0: We're gonna get into this later, but I think we should ask it now. What about our ESPs?
2: RESPs are different because those are not exempt. Uh, The reason the RSPs are exempt is because the government made a policy decision a number of years ago that people who save for their retirement need to continue to have those funds for their retirement. RESP is different, partly because the government has a matching program in the RSP scenario. RESP rather. So The bankrupt's contributions, I believe, and Barb can correct me if I'm wrong, are live and available to the trustee. This often causes lots of angst amongst the non-bankrupt spouse because the money was saved for the children's education. And how could that money that was saved for the children's education go to pay my deadbeat ex-spouse's debts?
0: Yeah, little Johnny's 18 going off to university. They got 100 grand. Now it's gone. Right. Right. That's just terrible, right? So, terrible. what's the distinction? Well, notionally, the government is contributing to our RSPs as well through the tax code. So, how, why are they making a distinction between education funds and retirement funds? I guess it's a policy decision. Also. I guess a policy, a
2: policy decision. Here. and. That way in your retirement, you're not gonna be leaning on the government for various assistance.
0: Okay. I'm on title for 1%, does that protect the house? Barbara?
1: Um, Not necessarily, I guess it's only 1%, but you'd be responsible for buying back your 1% of the equity or the other owners may have the option to buy you out on the 1%. Um, The mortgage documents would be reviewed to determine that you did not transfer your, other equity um, prior to filing an insolvency proceeding, um, only to remove it from your assets to the creditors. But you may, um, the value at the date of bankruptcy and the value at the date of discharge can vary, like we talked about, the bankrupt can hold 1% of interest in the property, but it could be liable for the whole mortgage.
0: So these 1% are out of luck. But They're not really it.
2: helping themselves.
0: <clears throat> they could frustrate the process and, and delay the sale or cloud title, right? They they have some very small leverage, but not a lot. So does the percentage mean anything, Barbara?
1: Um, for one percent, not really. Um, like, a lot what, of what if it like, was
0: twenty five percent or?
1: Well, it's 50%. a bigger number, right? It's a bigger amount of equity that the creditors can receive. One percent is usually pretty small.
0: So the, right. process, the process is the same. It doesn't matter on the percentage. <laughs>
1: No, and the people that we see that have 1% are usually on their parents' house for 1% right. for um, qualifying for a mortgage or a friend's property, something of that nature. So there's a lot of paperwork to go through. You know, what did they apply for at the bank? How was it listed on the application? Um, different things that we review to make sure that it's truly that small of a percentage.
0: Okay, let's go back to our audience, run another poll. Uh, well, we, we just... Uh answered this, but let's see if anybody's listening. What happens to the RSPs and RSPs? While we're waiting for the audience, just want to say uh, we've had some inquiries about collaborative practice training. We have a training session coming up. If you want to email Shannon, she'll get you on the list for our next collaborative practice training. Also, if you want to be a presenter or speak at our summit, Shannon will send you some information where you can make an application to participate in these programs. All right, let's close this poll out. What do we have for answers? Uh, well, 33% think they survive bankruptcy when they do not. Well, the RSP does, I guess. And others are going to go through the Q and A box. All right, uh, we've answered this one. Unfortunately, the RSP is gone. So let's go into our next poll. How they can the- buy
1: back the RSP though, if they wanted, right? The net value.
0: Well, what does that mean though? If there's 100 grand.
1: That's a big what's, number.
0: What's the net value? You mean the one half share?
1: Well, no, because it's not a true trust and it's cashable. Um, the plan holder can cash out the RSP at any time. But if they cash it out, there's administration fees that um, are have to be paid. The government contributions are returned to the government. So the amount that the trustee can receive is diminished by those things. Right. So if we get a buyout amount, it might be... plan, it may come down to like $7,000. It may or not be possible, but it's one of the considerations.
0: If I was representing the non-bankrupt spouse, can't you do some tracing to say, okay, I contributed X number of dollars to this Mm -hmm. RESP and that should be not subject to the bankruptcy proceeding. Do you see that at all?
1: We do see that we also see it with joint ones where actually the people who hold the RESP will write us in state, we need consent of the non bankrupt spouse before we will withdraw any funds.
0: So who who makes that decision is it the discretion of the trustee is it the judge in the bankruptcy court who decides if there is a dispute over the RESP what number is going to go to the kids.
1: Um, the trustee does have some discretion based on the information that they're given if there really is um, no just getting any forward with anybody, not able to make any sort of decision, based on the dollar value we could go to court and ask for the court to make a decision.
2: Okay, but that okay. argument does come up a lot, Russ, where the one spouse contributes, even though it's a joint policy and they make that argument.
0: Yeah. Yeah. how does the lawyer get paid cash legal aid 10% family friends credit cards payday loans GoFundMe, other be interesting to see what the others are put it in the box so now we're at our midway point and we've got 10 15 minutes left we're going to pick up our pace a little bit here because we're having way too much fun um trust funds in the lawyer's account what will we do with those
2: Howard Ours okay so- bankrupt. I've got a retainer right. By their nature, um, trust funds are being held for the bankrupt person. So strictly speaking, those funds, if anybody knows about them, should be sent to the trustee or the trustee should ask for them. Practically speaking, that doesn't usually happen because Everybody understands that the lawyer needs to be paid in order to continue advancing the person's family law rights. Um, but if if someone tries to abuse that and says, well, I'm about to go bankrupt, so I'll give my lawyer half a million dollars so that I don't have it, I think that would seem to be uh, disguised as a retainer. If it's five, $10,000, I don't think anybody would fuss over that too much. So generally speaking, trust, anybody holding anything in trust for the bankrupt ought to be turned over to the trustee.
0: I've been involved in family cases where the other party goes bankrupt. We get the uh, statement to the, from the trustee, The the other family lawyer is not listed at all as a debtor or a creditor, just, you know, I guess we don't ask because <clears throat> it's solicitor client privilege, but it'd probably be important to know how that lawyer is being funded.
2: Right, right. It's very important because maybe there's mm-hmm. undisclosed assets.
0: Exactly. All right, we've answered this one. Let's flip it over to the next one. If leave is granted to proceed on an exempt pension, what amount is available? I assume the whole thing. What was the answer to that one, Howard?
2: I would assume the whole thing. Um, but again, as we said earlier, I think the pension is outside of the bankruptcy. So you probably don't even need to go to that step. That asset still belongs to the debtor.
0: All right. If equalization uh, amount as the valuation date taking account all assets and debts and standard equalization. All right, so this is interesting. You're going to calculate, somebody goes bankrupt. You're going to calculate equalization as of the valuation date, data separation they've got all these debts but we know they're getting wiped out do you still include the value of those debts on data separation howard well you do that would not seem to make sense right but
2: i i think what happens is is equalization is either determined between the parties or it is determined by court order either way you then Bring that claim to the trustee, and the trustee generally accepts it as um, as given, unless there's some obvious evidence of abuse. But if there's a court order or it's uh, a consent, then it's accepted, and the trustee doesn't really get involved in how it was calculated. Well, the judge
0: still has to follow the Family Law Act and exactly
2: says the deputy. Data exactly.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Right. Let's go into our next category: bankruptcy and support obligations. I I like a, an audience question that just came in on this. Lump sum spousal support. Is that exempt? Or is it uh subject to um to well, I think
2: I think it's still a debt that falls within the bankruptcy, but it's not discharged by the discharge of the bankrupt. Barbara, you agree with that? Yeah, it's a lump sum award. Yes. Yeah.
0: All right, so spousal and child support, are they affected by bankruptcy? Yes or no, Barbara?
1: No, the person still has to pay. They're still responsible for them. It doesn't go away as we talked about under section 178. Um, the receiving parent or FRO is encouraged to file a claim for the arrears. They do have that priority for the 12 months leading up to the insolvency, um, and they can receive dividends on that. So it's beneficial to file the claim.
0: So the effect of bankruptcy on support, really, um, it improves the bankrupt's ability to pay support, right? Because he's not or she's not liable for these other debts.
2: Would you agree, Howard? I would totally agree, because if you're paying a whole bunch of debts and now they're uh, frozen in time, you still have the same amount of income, but you have less money going out. So you should be able to make your support payments.
0: All right. All right. Does it matter what type of support the bankrupt? support? So if it's a child or does it matter if it's child or spousal support or are they both stopped or are they both continued? They both continue. I assume. They
1: both continue. Neither one of them stopped. Yeah, they're still really. responsible because otherwise their arrears are only going to grow and they're going to put them in a worse financial situation than they are today.
0: Okay. Um, is spousal support received by a bankrupt considered income? I think it is, of course. Yeah. Yes. What do you agree yes. with that? All right. If the agreement specifies more support than the spousal support advisory guidelines reflect, uh, would that still have a priority? So I guess this is an interesting idea. Is the reasonableness of the support that's being paid, reviewed or considered? and if it is, by who, the family court or the bankruptcy court? Howard?
2: I would think that assuming it's uh, consensual or court order, the trustee wouldn't look past it. If it's more than the guidelines, well, that's what the parties agreed to and you know, consenting uh, adults made it made a decision. If it was wholly unreasonable, then I would think that the trustee would get involved and potentially bring a motion to the bankruptcy court to say, hey, there's something going on here because this seems to be way out of whack and unreasonable.
0: I guess the reason would be, it could be high, is that they want to defeat the other creditors. Right. Right. And they're in, in some kind of plan with their former spouse. Exactly. All right. So child and spousal support, are they preferred creditors ahead of mortgages and line of credits? Howard.
2: Child support or preferred creditors. Um, Rank ahead of mortgages and lines of credits. Well, again, these are um, preferred creditors which rank ahead, but the secured creditor who holds a mortgage has very powerful remedies outside of the bankruptcy, because if the mortgage is not being paid, they'll call the loan and sell the house. So yes, while they may have- But the support's still going to get paid. The support's still going to get paid. Well, the support should still be paid, as right. we just talked. But you know, if the bank sells the house, that's outside of the bankruptcy
0: right it won't be
2: affected by the uh, the support won't benefit from the sale of that house
0: okay so we're going into our fourth category bankruptcy before after the data separation i think we've touched upon this question so we're going to move on i think howard's answered that so let's get into litigation strategies practice tips and grab bags so grab bags to start questions that didn't fit these four all right so there's some some people are asking is there going to be a change the bankruptcy legislation. Um, do you see any change in the future? This is really a policy issue, right,
2: Howard? Yeah, I think it, it, exactly, Russ. It's a policy issue, and I, I would imagine that the the government is. I mean, I don't know, but I would imagine this is not top priority. What the the rumors are is that there's some movement to try to protect um pensions of employees of large companies in the event of those companies bank going bankrupt but i I haven't heard any rumblings about spouses equalization so i think for the time being we need to assume that there won't be any change and they will still be unsecured creditors
0: it's federal legislation so it's going to be the government of canada right Uh, somebody's threatening to declare bankruptcy, uh, to scare you into settling, what can we do, Barbara? Can you search for this, see if somebody's done a a filing?
1: Yes, on the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy site, there's a place in which you can search. So it looks for the name, birth date, province that you live in. Um, There is a fee in order to do that, but it will populate. Um, If the person may be still using maybe a maiden name versus a married name, you may have to search under Couple of names in order to determine it the site is updated every 24 hours so if it was a recent filing i would probably wait a few days in order to ensure that the information is accurate
0: good okay so we're going to skip the next question let's go to um do you name the bankruptcy trustee as a respondent in the family proceeding
2: Howard, i wouldn't think so the trustee would monitor it but the proceedings are still as between the spouses, Um, to the extent that you would want to bind the trustee to any filing or or any order, then you would, I mean, in good practices, put the trustee on notice and they may attend. I've attended family court uh, a number of times over the years. Uh, Feel like a fish out of water there, but that's okay. But um, yeah, generally, I would just keep the trustee informed and not necessarily have to make them a party.
0: The family <laughs> lawyers feel the same way if they're in bankruptcy court. Don't right. About that. We're <laughs> the skip worst this. is
2: going to criminal court. There you yeah, go. Right. We're going to skip this
0: one. Yeah. Criminal court in Brampton, provincial court. There's the wild, wild west for you. <laughs> How does a lawyer or mediator actually do the NFP with the bankruptcy in place? So what's the process, Howard? I guess you'd still provide evidence and have the family court judge make the order. Exactly. Almost would be like a Rule 23 uncontested hearing because the bankrupt, does the bankrupt usually participate in that?
2: Well, to the extent it's a fight over assets, the bankrupt no longer has control over their assets because they vest in the trustee. So in that case, the bankrupt may not care. If it's dealing with support, I assume the bankrupt would care.
0: Okay. A few minutes left. A few more questions. We're going to get in here. Thank you everybody for sending them in. Um, last time we talked about bankruptcy courts, they're not everywhere. Um, so what what do you do if your community superior court um, is not a bankruptcy court? Where's the action commenced? For example, let's say you're in Lindsay and Lindsay has a superior court. You'd have to go down to Toronto, right, Howard?
2: Uh, Lindsay. Possibly. Barb knows the jurisdictions better. But the point is, is that there's always a bankruptcy court. It just may not be around the corner or in your town or city. But the bankruptcy division, there's five courts that has been allocated amongst the the province. So there's always a bankruptcy court. And now, given that most bankruptcy court hearings are virtual, it really doesn't matter where you are.
0: But that may change. So the province of Ontario has five regional bankruptcy courts, so your local superior court may not be the bankruptcy court. My advice is, if you got to go to Toronto or somewhere, flip it over somewhere, someone like Howard, he's in bankruptcy court, he knows the forms, the judges and the rules. When does a bankrupt start to pay 50% of their surplus income, Barb?
1: They start to pay right away. So we get um, their pay stubs, we determine a budget. The surplus income is based on the superintendent's standard. They um, tell us exactly what a person can make and then they have to pay based on their income. We monitor their monthly income and expenses every month and their non-discretionary expenses. So things like out of pocket, medical, um, childcare, support payments. Based on that, we determine what their payment is. So if the payment goes up or down, then there's discussions with them in order to make sure that they're staying on track. For someone who's a first time bankrupt with surplus income it's going to be at least a 21 month period in order to make sure the payments are made. And someone who is greater than, um, who's filed twice or more times, there are a 36 month for surplus income.
0: All right, that's one o'clock. We're gonna bring this train into the station. Thank you, Barbara and Howard and Shannon's back.
3: Thank you so much, Barbara and Howard, for being here to um, have this discussion with Russell today. We really appreciate it. Um, And as Russell mentioned earlier, we just wanna make a note that we've recently launched our speaker application on our website for anyone um, who's a family law professional in our community who would like to submit their ideas and are interested in joining Russ as a panelist for one of our virtual events. We're always looking for knowledgeable guest speakers like Barbara and Howard to join Russell in these discussions. So please feel free to send in your ideas to our team. This virtual event, was very much a product of the feedback that we received from our audience members wanting more Q&A. Um, so we definitely take it into consideration um, and a our of more our cow appreciation. Exactly. <laughs> um, so again, we just want to thank everyone and we hope you all have a wonderful day.